The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Mr. Randy Woodward, the self-proclaimed bond freak. Uh, we're going to get freaky uh, during this conversation. Uh, Randy, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? How did you get involved in certain markets? Uh, why uh, are you a bond freak, and what are you doing now? Well, um, I started at Bloomberg in uh, 1988, which obviously is a unique way to be thrust into the financial system and and, you know, I call it Bloomberg University. So I was there 88 to 95. Um, and it was a very, very growing company at the time. I think I was there for their, when they crossed over 10,000 terminals. And now I think they've got something like 350,000. Um, what was unique about Bloomberg was that it gave me uh, eventually unfettered access to Wall Street. Uh, it's probably one of the few vendors that, you know, we had desks on major fixed income floors in Wall Street. So I, I learned a lot. I saw a lot. And um, through programming and sales, I it, you know, developed the craft, you know, m- mostly in bonds. Bloomberg wasn't really huge in equities at that time. Uh, they are now, but uh, my skill set comes in bonds. And, uh, you know, at one point, you know, I was I got to selling Bloomberg's with bonds and I just decided in 95 to sell bonds with Bloomberg's. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And primarily for that entire time, which is why you know I've been doing some podcasts lately, is that um, I sell bonds to banks. And that's the depository is my primary client base, coast to coast. And the last three weeks has been somewhat maddening because there's just a lot of supposed experts saying a lot of really stupid things. And I think it's important to talk about that, you know, m- much of what they're saying is just simply not true. And banks on the whole are going to be fine. Wait, so you're telling me experts don't know what they're talking about? That's a <laughs> that's a shocking. Well, so, you know, I mean, to, you know, I know we all know that. I mean, I, I think I'm sure a lot of people on on listening uh, have their expertises, and when you, you know, when you finally realize, you know, it when they're talking about your world, you realize, oh my god, they don't know what they're talking about. You know, particularly during the great financial crisis, you know, listening to the Senate banking committees, I was like, oh my, there no one knew. There was two. Bob Corker from Tennessee, and, and I forget the other fellow. But that was it. I mean, they were asking questions that made no sense, making statements that made no sense. Um, and it's it's even worse today. And it's real worse now because of social media. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, my parents, you know, watch certain financial media during the day. And they're calling me going, oh, my God, are you going to be okay? I'm like, would you please stop watching that station? You're killing me. Yeah, they're you know, what was just said just simply isn't true. Um, and and it, it's dangerous. And it's not just, it's people who should even know. I mean, I think uh, Richard Fisher last week or week before, you know, ex-Dallas Fed president really said something stupid, you know, that banks failed. And they really didn't. You know, they're, banks fail all the time. But what we're dealing with now is something completely different that the Fed induced over, the, well, probably the last 15 years, but particularly in 20 and 21 they've created an exposure in banking that's going to have ramifications so actually i love that we're going in this direction out of the gate um i've called this whole thing uh, a manufactured uh financial crisis and i'm with you social media has made all this uh 
so much worse. I was joking about how, you know, people were spending 92 hours a day on Twitter spaces, uh, basically just yeah. lamenting how it's the 2008 redux all over again. It's the end of the world. And I kept on saying the end of the world is the bull case. Let, let's, let's, <laughs> let's talk about those last three weeks and kind of the, the point you just referenced that all these in quotes experts uh, are, are putting out a narrative, which is just not factually right. First of all, what has been right in terms of the narrative around the regional banks uh, and what have people gotten most wrong? Most wrong is that simple comments like the banks bought bad bonds or the banks uh, bought bonds that were too long with 20 and 30 year uh, maturities, which you know they don't understand duration. You know, these these kind of bonds, these banks buy and the Fed, by the way. You know, they have cash flow. They don't have, you know, they're not getting all their money back in 30 years. It comes back over a period of time. But what I think the biggest thing is that nobody really understands or a few people do. And, and it's okay because I have a very unique, you know, eye line into, into what's going on. There's not a lot of people that do what I do um, that see uh, portfolios, bank portfolios, the, every single piece that they own. This is all I've done my entire career, and I've seen it ebb and flow. I've seen mistakes made, and I, I, and you know, my job is to make sure my banks make as few mistakes as possible. But when you got into March 2020, that's really where the massive manipulation started, and it was a double whammy because not only did the Fed take rates to zero, and this is the one the one thing that I I'm really curious about. I, I hope somebody will figure it out one day is why they were buying mortgages as well. And because basically what happened is, as we went into 2020, we were slowing down. 2019, we're probably likely headed for a recession, which meant my banks had a lot of money to invest, which means all banks probably did too. So they were buying. And, and you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, and I use 30-year mortgages as, as an example. Most banks aren't buying 30-year mortgages. Some did, but most didn't. But it's a good example because uh, I did have some doing that. Uh, going into late 19, we're just going. I'm just going to use a very simple Fannie Mae two and a half percent 30-year mortgage. Prices were uh, going up from you know about September into uh, Feb 2020. So they were going to about, say, uh, 102, you know, bond, bonds price to par, and you got to pay a premium when, you know, rates are lower and, you know, you know, there's more aggressive buying. Well, something was going on. Obviously, we were getting into COVID. Somebody, I don't know who, all of a sudden had to sell mortgages very badly, and they were flooding the market, and prices went down to about par. And I will tell you, my banks were buying hand over fist as much as they could get, as fast as they could get. Well, I don't know who that somebody was, but the Fed decided we have to buy those. We have to save that market. And they, in one week, they took prices from par, 100 cents on the dollar, to 105. I mean, that is a massive, probably never seen in my career, a move up or down that hard, that fast. So all these banks now are having to deal with these prices, these manipulated prices by a huge percentage. And on top of it, so that had ramifications. You know, this is what I, and please jump in if I, if I, you know, talk too much, but so here you are, banks have a bunch of money. You just made the main product they want to buy, whether it be agencies, you know, and primarily government backed collateral. So whether it be just agency debentures or mortgage-backed CMOs, whatever, you just took prices up dramatically, artificially, and forced the bank's hand to have to invest in that world. They can't just sit up on cash. It doesn't work that way. Then as you go through COVID, well, as you go through and they kept rates this way, everything refinances. So all the mortgage bonds that you had all come back to you lightning fast CPRs, which is a uh, percentage annual rate of prepayment. They come back at 60, 70, 90 CPR, which means basically 80% of all the money you had invested comes back to you, you know, in if you have mortgage-backed securities. So then 
it's worse because all the mortgages and all the loans and everything you had, you know, that you have on your books, that all has to reprice because of what the Fed's doing. And then it gets doubly, doubly worse, where now we put out tons of stimulus, a trillion or some in actual money from the government for stimulus, PP loans, all that jazz. And all that money has to be reinvested at these rates that are the most, the lowest rates in history. And during that entire time, you're literally telling them, hey, rates are going to be low for longer. We're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. And everybody's like, oh, they should be. They were told. They weren't told. That's ridiculous. That was about two years of not being told. And all of a sudden, inflation goes parabolic and the Fed has to react for whatever reason, as violently as they did. Here's what you have. Everything that banks own are at a loss. Every bond portfolio in the world is at a loss. And if you're forced to sell it, like Silicon Valley Bank was forced to sell it, you got a problem. And that's a massive exposure that all banks are sitting on right now. The, the banks must have been in communication with the Fed all throughout last year, I got to imagine. I mean, and Powell himself said there's going to be pain, right? I mean, it's not like this was this was unknown. I mean, the Fed was very active at telegraphing it. I think what probably surprised – Well, I, most, I mean, they yeah, were active way late in the game. The damage was done, Michael. You know, if you're, all your assets have repriced, you know – you're you're stuck with them. I mean, and and you're there's really nothing you can do. And once they even started, you know, when they did start thinking about raising rates, well, then you'll start going up. Everything's you know going to move into a loss category, and there's not a lot you can do. There's really, and you know, this whole thing about hedging is, is for the most part, it's ridiculous. You can mitigate, but it's not a panacea of risk management. It just doesn't work that way. And to be sure, well, and certainly, certainly not at that but, speed. Right. Certainly not at that speed. It's like, yeah, you know, if you just think about even the idea of, you know, uh, getting a, an institution to agree on uh, having a larger hedge book. OK, that requires weeks, months of debate, committee, voting, like all oh, this. Stuff. You can't do, well, you can't do that overnight. Right. And, and, and there's a negative there, too. People don't realize when you're hedging, you, you don't have this perfect hedge up and down. Usually when you hedge, you're hedging because you say, well, you know, rates look like they might be going up. But let me tell you, if they go down, then you're now you're really in trouble because now you got a, a massive, you know, loss on the hedge, and it just it just is. And remember too that when we're talking community banking, you know, people have to stop referring to J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs and anybody in the top probably twenty five, if not fifty. That's not really community banking, you know, Silicon, First Republic, you know, that's not community banking. So, you know, community banking is the institution's 10 billion and below. And let me tell you, man, that's how this economy operates. We need them. You know, it's, it's really interesting. You know, it, it, for a lot of people, they're, we're talking about flyover states, right? You know, and they've never really been there. They never sat in the room with a community banker and, and realized how they operate. And, you know, they, they, they really do believe in what they're doing. They believe in their community. It isn't the, they're not Jamie Diamonds. They're not even remotely the same thing. But, you know, there's thousands of them that are sitting, you know, in this exposed position, which will fix itself over time. You know, it with cash flow, both sides of the balance sheet, this will get fixed. But I think that's the key term, right, over time. And that actually relates to you know, what could be credit contraction that's now really starting in earnest. Right. Um, right. I've made this point publicly very loudly before. I think there's a credit event out there. I think it's more around the rollover of all these corporate loans next year and the market discounting it at some point this year, later in the year. But maybe talk through to the audience the the effects on uh, of this regional uh, bank situation in terms of actual credit flow uh, beyond the idea that the Fed is, contract, uh, is, is contracting credit. Now you've got uh, a disincentive to loan by the regional banks. Well, yeah, you know, like on on all sorts of angles, you know, you're you you know, if you're sitting there and you're seeing that Silicon's getting beat up for having the super risky portfolio, which they did not, you know, to the numbers on their AFS portfolio that they sold for a two billion dollar loss was actually a very con- fairly conservative portfolio, three and a half year duration, a one seventy nine book yield when they sold it tells me that that was a fairly conservative portfolio. Um, 
I think you have a lot of banks now that are probably in that four or four and a half year duration. But they see that. They see that in the news. They're probably the regulators, even though, you know, they're talking about these new rules for 100 billion or more, or 200 billion or more. It, it doesn't that the thought process on those rules, if they're instituted, that'll still feed down to all banks, whether it's official or not. The regulators will start paying attention to it more so. And this unrealized loss is going to get more attention, you know, and that what's that mean? Banks are like, all right, we'll shorten up duration. We'll, we'll, you know, and that means less credit to the longer duration type things, which is mortgages, which can be longer CRE. You know, if, if that's what you want, that's, you know, if that's what we got to do, that's what we got to do. And so that's, you know, that's one angle that, and they don't, you know, deposits are rolling out. So they're going to have less money to lend. So they're getting hit from all sorts of different places. And, and I'll give you a quote I got from my, this is somebody, and you know, I guarantee, unless you're in a bank, you don't realize this. And by the way, one other thing, advantage I have over all bankers is that I see lots and lots and lots of banks over many, many, many years. They don't. They see their own bank. And a lot of times they're like, oh, my God, I made a mistake with my portfolio. I'm like, no, you didn't. You're, you look exactly like all my other clients. You know, here's, here's a report. You, you're all in the same boat. You were put in this boat by the Fed. But one banker said this morning, which was really interesting to me, is that bank loans aren't going to be controlled by the salesmen anymore. They're going to be controlled by the bankers. And so let me tell you what that means. You've got basically, you got the CEO, and there's a power on a simple community bank. You got a CEO. You got the senior lender, and then you got the CFO. So the senior lender is the one who's generating loans, which is going to be uh, commission-based, right? All his guys under him and him are going to make a commission on the loans that they generate. The CFO is the one watching the entire system, watching the, the, all sides of the balance sheet. And you know, he the CFO will manage the bond portfolio and keep that in check. But here's the thing. In my career, I've sat in these rooms and been amazed how much power the senior lender has over the CFO and how many conversations I've had with CFO going, why are you letting them do that? Why are you letting them create loans that are at a loss right out of the gate? He goes, because I, I, the CEO won't listen to me. All he knows is we're we're providing loans to our clients and that's what we're supposed to be doing. When in fact, he's like, no, you're creating an exposure that you should not be creating, right? So, like, let's go back to, like, uh, IndyMac back in 08. They went full bore subprime. That was their mistake. They leaned one direction, and they went heavy. And this, there's nothing the CFO, I guarantee you the CFO did not approve of that. And, you know, it, it, they quickly went, you know, got a run on the bank, and they went bankrupt. That's we're going to see that I'm afraid in the next several months and probably year is any bank that really leaned heavy into one sector is probably going to have a problem. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Speaking about... Um leaning into certain sectors. Um, let's talk about how this relates to housing uh, for a bit. Um, presumably, this credit contraction uh, obviously impacts uh, mortgages and loans, aside from the fact that mortgage rates are elevated. Yeah, interesting. When, when all this was happening, I put out a tweet saying the regional bank crisis just saved the housing market. And I said that purposely under the thinking that this would cause long-duration treasury yields to drop. Mortgage rates are baselined off of treasury yields. And that would be at the mm -hmm. margin, maybe help keep prop up housing prices. That was the thinking behind the tweet. But, but interestingly enough, the spread actually widened in terms of mortgage rates and, uh, right. and service so, treasury. 
right? So, so, so then I said, well, actually, maybe not, right? Given that there's almost like a repricing of risk in, on the homeowner. Um, how does all this impact uh, loans for housing, and what's sort of the what's the real impact on housing in general with all this? I, I'm I'm of the mindset that this becomes almost like a nail in the coffin for the housing market. Well, I I don't you know I don't know about that. I mean, you know, supply and demand is a fickle thing, and you know, so who knows really in that regard? But what I do know. And I think it's already been done. I think banks are going to be, on the whole, going to be much less likely to participate in the 30-year mortgage. You know, why would you? If, if you're getting beat up for duration on, you know, let's say your bond portfolio. And again, you know, most of my accounts do not own 30-year mortgage. They own 10-year, 15-year, 20-year, which is still part of the market, by the way. Um, but, you know, a lot of them definitely hold 30-year mortgages on their loan books. Well, if you got regulators coming in asking you a question about your unrealized losses, and that's the other thing that financial media seems to miss is they, you know, they see AFS, HTM, and they're going all crazy about that. What they don't realize is you also have the exact same marks on your loan portfolio and probably a little bit worse because they're probably longer duration. So, you know, if you're going to be getting dinged, if this is going to be a conversation, and you got to realize you're getting the conversation with the board, you're getting auditors, every because you've got so many people who don't understand how duration works and how bonds heal themselves, how bonds move to par, and how they cash flow. And that cash flow, you know, just a, a little bit off topic, but same thing. That right now actually is can be a good thing for banks is that any cash flow they can reinvest is actually going to be reinvested at higher rates. So the more they can, you know, stay in this environment and hopefully get deposits to stop rolling off, they can put that back into higher yielding bonds or mortgages and their income will actually go up. And that unrealized losses and all that naturally goes away. As long as you don't have, you're not forced to sell it, naturally goes away. But back to your point, if, if the whole world is pointing fingers, why would they want to participate in the 30-year market, you know, if they're going to get you know, dang for it. So that's a huge buyer that I think, you know, to some degree is going to leave, leave that market. Who's, you know, who's going to buy that stuff now? That means whoever's left is going to demand more spread, right? It's just, you know, that's, that's just supply and demand right there. If there's, you know, less demand for it, you know, it's, it's going to be a problem on pricing, I think. Yeah. I think from my perspective, the question is, you know, is that spread, if it were to widen further, is that uh, where you might have a collapse in inflation expectations? Because again, if you don't have, if you have this repricing of risk around homeowners, um, that's that's one way to bring down inflation pretty aggressively, and it could maybe even cause a bit of a panic amount among those that have second or yeah. third properties. Well, for sure, I absolutely, absolutely. You know, and you know, people naturally, whatever the high price in their property was that's their God-given right. That That's money good. And if the prices start coming down, they, uh, they're they going to hold on to it because they want that high price again. I'm going to, you know, I know it'll go back up there. And that just means it gets worse and it gets worse. And, and yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that is, <laughs> you know, I want to say deflationary, but, you know, Powell hates that word. And so that's why they've instituted disinflation. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's my theory is, and I've been asking people, no one really wants to commit to it, but you know, if we're killing credit to some degree, uh, M2 is coming down, ODL is going, you know, other deposit liabilities, which is a lacy hunt metric that he really likes. I mean, it's coming down aggressively. The quantity of money is coming down. I'm, I'm looking past inflation. I'm like, how do you avoid deflation at some point? And and everything you're talking about points to that could be a very likely scenario. No, and actually, the, so, and and uh, I tend to be more of a deflationist in my own thinking, longer term. But I'm with you on that. I, I, I was very early in saying it last year, saying you know, inflation inflation shocks are inherently deflationary, not disinflationary, because of not yeah. just the impact on margins, but the overreaction. And, and but I think this gets to be really interesting, though, just in terms of kind of sequencing, right? So. Play it as a th- as a thought experiment. So you end up having 
conceivably a, a very aggressive deceleration decline in housing uh, breakdown mm-hmm. in inflation, but the but inflation lags, so it, it becomes political, right. politically not not the optics of it look would look terrible if the Fed sees disinflation maybe tipping into deflation, but they lower rates while headline CPI is still elevated. So well, that's this, this strange dynamic, right? Just from that perspective, yeah, that'll be panic because. What, what, take notice. He's, I think he's done it three times now. Three times in Powell's pressers, some someone has asked about his efforts to lower prices, and that nothing triggers him more than that. Because you'll see him, and I'd love to find the video of it. He jumps out of his shoes. He's like, "No, absolutely not. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to keep prices from going up as much as they are. I want two percent." So when you when you say prices down, that's deflation. He does not want that. Now, I don't think it, virtually anybody in the United States understands that that the Fed isn't interested in in bringing all these prices of whatever widgets back down. He just doesn't want them going up as much because, on the whole, if you read, you know, pretty much. And to me, this is a Bernanke construct that you have to avoid deflation at all costs because that. That that is a self uh, fulfilling prophecy. Is once you start to have deflation, then people just want to wait and wait, irrationally wait, irrationally be frugal, causing a depression. So they're more afraid of deflation than they are inflation. So if we ever got in, and that, and when I'm looking at M two and all that, I'm like, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. Like you said, there's a delay, there's a lag. What's going to happen if all of a sudden you start? Heading headlong into a zero percent inflation, risking deflation, and you know I've only got one economist to say, well, we'll just start QE again. I'm like, okay, well, that's that's a great answer, excellent. Well, actually, but that, that that's actually a good um, transition, also to quantitative tightening. I mean, you know, <laughs> it seems like uh, a lot of their QT got undone with uh, with some of this uh, regional banks stuff, but um, it, it sounds to me that you don't think they're ever going to get out of the balance sheet game because if disinflation turns to deflation, uh, good luck trying to they unload can't. the balance sheet. Yeah. There's no way. There's no way. You know, and I, I'm, I'm reading things, you know, like this morning from, you know, one person saying that, you know, oh, well, they what they really need to do is start selling mortgages, selling their mortgages, even though they're at a loss because they can just put them in that special deferred asset they have. And I'm like, who the hell is going to buy them? My, my banks aren't. They don't have any money. You know, I, I it, so... They could sell into a, a, a vacuum, and I guess money managers will pick it up. And guarantee you, they're going to be at you know some really serious discounted pricing. So, yeah, I think the Fed's stuck. I don't know how, and and I don't. I'll be honest with you. I don't understand the mechanism of money destruction. You know, with M two coming down, you know, Lacey Hunt. You know, I've asked him a couple of times, and it's it's hard to to explain. But you know, he's saying that basically every QT is about 70% destruction of money and 30% of pushing it, you know, out to money market funds and things like that. Um, and so when does that end? You know, does it, do they have to stop QT to keep, I think so. You know, if, if they don't stop it, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're experimenting with something we haven't maybe ever done, you know, with forcing M2 down, you know, by the Fed doing it on purpose has never been done. And the only times that I could, uh, that I, I think maybe I don't know, once in the fifties and then, you know, 32 and 37. And those are terrible examples of M2, you know, falling year over year anyway. So this is a massive experiment. And, you know, the overall topic that people, you know, that I, everybody gets is that the Fed will keep doing what they do until they break something. Well, they've been breaking stuff for quite a while. And I mean, I just think they're right now, they're winging it day to day. Some of you may have noticed, by the way, I changed the uh, the format of the Twitter space name. I usually put Lead Lag Live in the name. Uh, I started just for shits and giggles playing around with uh, AI-based titles, uh, and this was entirely AI-driven. Uh, it's both amazing and disturbing uh, at the same time. Um, <laughs> Randy, let's, let's talk about uh, LIBOR. Uh, for a bit here, because there's more than just what's going on That's with a good treasuries. One, yeah. um, first of all, uh, uh, the the term LIBOR's demise sounds dramatic, but also is probably accurate. L- level the playing field for the audience. First of all, what is LIBOR? Why does it matter? And what's been happening more recently? <clears throat> okay, so 
the first thing I was taught when I entered Bloomberg was LIBOR. Like it's the lifeblood of the world at the time. And basically it's just, it's very simple. It's just how much are banks lending to each other? Unsecured. Okay. So major banks around the world, um, I'll charge you this much for an overnight rate or a three month, whatever. And it, it gives back then it was an indication of credit, um, stress, meaning that if all of a sudden, you know, and we called it the TED spread, which is very simply the LIBOR's yield over U.S. Treasury's yield, similar maturities. And if all of a sudden LIBOR, that spread started widening, that meant banks around the world were starting to kind of, hey, I need to get paid a little bit more because I'm a, there's a little stress in the system. And that's essentially what that was. And that's why it was so important to watch. And probably definitely too long to describe in, in, in the next the time we have. But that was the bane of the Fed's existence because, you know, I was very much in this market going into the GFC, the great financial crisis. And what people don't realize is that from about, I think, the first extraordinary effort by the Fed came, I think, August of seven. And it was followed by just another dozen uh, uh, new facilities and new efforts and new cuts and new everything because LIBOR kept spiking and the Fed had to, was forced to go in there and try to bring calm back into markets. And it would work for a month or two and then it'd spike again, work for a month or two, it kept going and going and going with this dance until finally the LIBOR spread. Basically, it was either, you know, 200 was sort of the demarcation when it got to 2% over U.S. Treasuries, that that was risk. Risk was just, it was an alarm going off. And then when you got into October 19th or so, 08, it went over 400. And that's when they had to do TARP. And that was, so after that, LIBOR really, in my opinion, ceased to exist because the Fed became the lender of last resort to the entire world, to the entire banking system. And so, from that point on, there really wasn't any uh, unsecuritized lending anymore. And so from that point on, my opinion is, is the Fed, the central banks, and what it turned out to be ARC, the Alternative Reference Rate Committee, I mean, a consortium of the smartest financial people in the whole world, had to kill LIBOR, but they had to create a new index, and that's SOFR. And this is going to have ram. It's already having ramifications, and it's it's almost comical because these the smartest men and the women in the world creating this thing didn't see these ramifications coming. And I'll give you one: was September 16, 17, 19, which is the apocalypse. The whole idea of what the Fed was trying to do is create an index that's market uh, sourced, okay? So they went and be like, hey, you know, we're not managing it, which was totally ridiculous because they control short-end rates. But they're like, we're going to use this repo for the most part to price SOFR. See, it's a market. It's a market. Well, then all of a sudden, repo blows up. It goes up in, in intraday to 10%. And, and th the fact that that happened, everybody should look at that and say, Wow, you guys are supposed to be so smart, so genius. You did not see that coming because they spent all those years trying to kill LIBOR and sell SOFR, and then SOFR blows up. You had to know that was not part of the plan. And that's where we got the reverse repo line going. And basically, now the Fed took over repo, right? So, literally, that's how they're controlling rates is they control all lending and borrowing rates. On, on you know on the short end for the whole system, and that's going to have ramifications. You know, getting rid of a market uh, number like LIBOR, where there's some credit stress uh, spread to it built in, that's gone. And which means, and I probably should explain it better, but what that's going to come down to is new debt based off SOFR is going to be at a much wider spread. Than it has been in the past, because they have to try to get any possible stress from that loan or from that borrower. They have to price that in at the beginning, because LIBOR won't 
do it for them while the loan exists anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah. And what's the, what's the implication um, for on, on foreign borrowers, uh, borrowers, right? I mean, the same thing. It's going to affect the entire world. I mean, because LIBOR, you know, this index, which so far, I guess they're going to use Sonia and all these, you know, uh, but basically the same type of index where it's based off repo that, I mean, look at it this way. So if I did a LIBOR, base loan. And let's say the TED spread was 30 basis points. Well, that reflects, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not funding that loan that day. And then my funding's locked and my loan is locked forever. It doesn't work that way. And that's what we're seeing, by the way, with banks, right? You got short funding, you know, uh, funding uh, in doing long loans, investing in long loans. So there's a duration mismatch there. It's the same with, you know, going off LIBOR. Well, if all of a sudden there's stress in the system, well, if I'm the blender, my funding cost goes up. But now it used to be when it was I had a LIBOR loan, the LIBOR loan would adjust with it. So if my funding costs went up, that meant my lending yield would also go up because it's based off LIBOR. That doesn't exist anymore. There was a the Fed came out with this about six months ago. They, they, there was an article about this and, and from the uh, uh, New York Fed research desk, and they talked exactly about this. And what they said, they explained it, and they said, these guys are saying, hey, I did that LIBOR loan, but now my funding cost is going up, and that yield is not going up with it. I'm, I'm going to end up in a negative situation here. Or it's the same with credit lines. That was a big one. We created these credit lines, and all of a sudden, you know, uh, the, the the COVID hits, everybody takes their credit as fast as they can, yet that has to be funded at a high, wider spread by those banks because of the stress. So ramification is, and, and the Fed admitted, well, it, it kind of, again, comically in the end of this article, well, maybe there is a need for a credit stressed index for certain types of loans like CNI. And I haven't heard anything about it since. But they flat out admitted we didn't see that coming. So I've heard bank CEOs talking about, you know, uh, or uh, well, actually, I should say corporate CEOs talking about, you know, we're probably going to get charged a lot more because we got to go off this index, you know, and this is what you know the lenders are telling us that we're going to be charged a wider spread on the onset of the loan. That's tighter credit, right? That's going to be tightening credit. Yeah, and all this I will say, it, it you're kind of confirming something I've said before as well, which is that I think with hindsight, we may look back at this period and say bonds had two bad back-to-back years. You know, last year was the duration crisis, so this year might be the credit crisis as all this widening keeps on uh, taking place. The only the only thing that makes me pause on that is we're in a pre-election year, um, and pre-election years tend to be notoriously strong for risk assets, with the exception of 1987. Oh, what's the fiscal response uh, in your mind to widening spreads? I mean, you're not going to get voted in uh, with tighter credit, but you will bring down inflation. I, I have no idea, man. I, you know, fiscally, I have absolutely no idea. I don't know what they can do because this is – this is you got to think about – all the debt that's, you know, even before 2021, you know, is still at lower rates, uh, better credit stipulations, higher LTVs. Uh, as that stuff has to be rolled, you know, that's going to cause a serious problem for a lot of these companies that were used to and levered up themselves. They were used to those rates and they were also convinced that the rates were going to stay the way they were for forever. and. You know, this is to me, it's just this is a, a, a giant tsunami heading our direction. And I, I, I can guess it where some of it's going to blow up. Like, you know, I, I really do think CRE is going to be a real serious problem for uh, particularly for banks who are super heavy CRE. You know, if you look into how those numbers work, it's 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 not good. Um, but there's going to be shadow stuff going on, too, that, you know, all the shadow banking, all the shadow borrowers, all the shadow lenders. It's all the same math, man. It's just math, and the math doesn't work anymore. And you know, the biggest problem is that you know, let, let's just take CRE, you know, commercial real estate. 
the biggest problem isn't that your lending rate's going to double, probably, at, 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 the, at the least. It's the valuation of the property. That's how CRE works. It's CRE isn't, you know, oh, I got a place by the beach and, you know, everybody wants it now. CRE is, that's an office building that creates, you know, a, an income stream. And if my, you know, if my income is, let's just say it's the same or mostly the same. And then now I got this, a lot more of the debt servicing. Well, you have to back all that out. And now your property is worth half of what it was, right? So the problem isn't how much more on debt that I got to pay. The problem is they're not going to give me the money. No one's going to give me the money. I'm going to have to show up to pay off a loan. I'm going to have to show up with a lot of equity cash in order to refinance my loan you know, from probably let's say it's a two million property that I, I got a loan for one point four. Now they're like, the you know the property is only worth one. I'll give you seven hundred thousand. You got to show up with another seven hundred thousand in cash, or you're dead. And a lot of that lending, by the way, is done with what's called you know with recourse. Probably mostly in rural areas, the bigger guys in the cities probably can do that. But that just means you got to sign off all your other assets as, as collateral. Because if you can't do this, we got to be able to go get it from your other assets. And that's, that stuff is probably going to start happening pretty soon. And, and that's, that's the part that I think is going to get a lot of people really worried. And I don't know how they fix that. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Are there are there? I don't know if you're comfortable uh, pointing out, but are there certain uh, banks that, uh, from what you've seen, have far far more risk exposure to the commercial real estate side? Where nah, that yeah, really could I be needed. Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to. Yeah. Yeah, no. But but you yeah. know, the, the idea is is you know, like let's take you know, let's look at First Republic. You know, I actually, from everything I've seen, uh, and and I'm, and I'm using them because they're in such distress right now. So it's not like I could do anything worse to them. But from everything I'm seeing, they just, you know, they looked at Silicon and they looked at Signature and said, oh, they have high uninsured percentage. Who's that? Okay, sell them. You know, and so I think PacWest and First Republic are, are unfairly gotten beaten up. I really don't think there was really anything wrong with their model. And from everything I've heard uh, from their clients and from, you know, people who know better than I would, was a well-run institution. And, but, you know, a run on a bank's a run on a bank and it could be for any reason. And so I, I, that's what I fear for a lot is that you'll have another bank go down and there'll be another type of metric like that. And then they'll go look for all those banks and try to scale the hell out of all their depositors. You know, this is what the Fed's trying to control is, you know, we got to stop these, these unnecessary runs. And I'm not saying Silicon was unnecessary. I don't know. They look complicated as hell to me. I don't really understand their particular model with VCs. And it just, there's a lot of, I think that's a book that's going to end up coming out sooner or later. But everything I've seen from First Republic and PacWest is, you know, quite normal. Um, so, yeah, I, but CRE is probably the one. I, I guess if you see the, you know, bank out there that's super heavy, particularly offices, you know, you got to look at that and be like, okay, how are they going to handle that? You know, I wonder if that explains the um, the underperformance of U.S. bank stocks against European financials. I mean, just broadly speaking, if you look at European financials ETFs, they've dramatically and continue to do so outperform U.S. banks, which is not something you, I think, historically see. You'd think the U.S. market would be stronger than uh, European financials. Uh, does that make sense? I, I'm just trying to riff off that idea. I mean, I, I, have to I don't the know. I mean, side, isn't it? Yeah. The, yeah, I don't follow European banks at all. The only thing I could think of, though, is that I and you could probably correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the 
the, the long duration mortgage lending is unique to the United States. I don't think that's really a thing anywhere else in the world. Maybe in Canada and Australia or something like that. But I think for the most part, they banks keep their the duration of their assets much shorter than the U.S. I think, um, but I don't know. Other than that, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know why they're doing any better than we are. Any thoughts on um, how all these dynamics play into the dollar? I mean, usually when you're in a credit contraction, the dollar uh, would uh, appreciate. Uh, that seems to not really be the case this time around. Yeah, that's you know that's another tough one for me because it's like. Currency movements in general are so opaque to me because there's so many moving parts around the whole world. You know, I I guess unless you start to see, you know, the more fiscal monetary stimulus and having to just go. And then there's a lot of guys calling for that. I mean, there's a lot of guys in Fintwit going, you know, hey, they're going to have to ramp their balance sheet up to 20 trillion. You know, the government's going to have to do this and they're going to have to buy that. I mean, yeah, I mean, at some point, right, you'd think that would crush the dollar. But they've done a lot of printing in the last couple of years, and it it doesn't seem to have really had much. You know, I think the dollar's value's gone up, hasn't it? Yeah, well, that's been one of the most amazing dynamics post QE three. Yeah. Everyone was talking about ZERP and QE three as a way of breaking the dollar, and that was actually around the time the the dollar bottomed in in twenty twelve. Again, it's it's probably a weak link for me, but you know, I, I you know, I I do like Jeff Snyder. I think that. He he works a lot with that. He's you know FinTwit and YouTube channels and whatnot, and you know I think he does a good job explaining. You know the world needs dollars. You know, and it, it isn't just about the United States; it's about the whole world. I mean, and that you know that's why when they talk about the reserve currency, I will say I think any talk of us losing reserve currency status is ridiculous. And I think that people like Snyder and Peter Zion will talk about you know when the, when most of the world is running on U.S. dollar debt. That's it's going to be really hard to you know get away from the dollar. I, I would say it's probably impossible. So I'm not that doesn't really I'm not concerned about that at all. Yeah, I, I, I personally think there's going to be a fat pitch to go into junk debt at some point this year, which would be after a credit event or after some kind of real blowout in spreads. Um, and I'm often asked, how do you know when that is? And my response is, it's kind of like the definition of profanity, right? You, you know it when you hear yeah. it and when you see it, right? Um, yeah. How do you identify, you know, if there is going to be some kind of a, a real blowout in spreads beyond what we've seen now? How would you say? When would you say to yourself, you know what, that's distressed enough? I mean, are there certain metrics that you look at? Is it gut feel from your years of experience? What would be sort of a time to consider allocating after a dislocation? Yeah, you know, my 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 view of it's is 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 limited because you know I'm strictly dealing with banks and for the most part uh, government agency backed. Um, so, you know, my world doesn't really experience distress, you know, cause it's unless the government does, but I, I do know that I have, you know, I have had some friends in that space and they're chomping at the bit. I mean, they've, they've got money, they got PE money and, you know, they're just waiting for fire sales. And, you know, that's probably where you got to start watching, you know, the black rocks and new veins and, all these big money managers, when you start to see stories about them, you know, buying up something, you know, like CRE, you know, I, I know, I think I saw that today. I think BlackRock did, although it could be for other reasons, but they just funded some giant fund for uh, commercial real estate, you know, because they're, that's what they're doing. They're getting ready for the fire sales and they could be, you know, monumental. Um, but uh, on the timing of that, God, who knows, man? You know, I, of course, I'd rather buy on the way up than on the way down because we don't know how far down is. Well, but, but yeah, I think it's interesting you say that because it, it's it's cliche, but it is true. I mean, there is a lot of cash on the sidelines that can come in and swoop in, but you know, which means that any kind of major dislocation probably is going to be short lived. But to your point, the magnitude is the question yeah. mark, which makes everybody sort of nervous about deploying all at once. Yeah, this is a different thing. I, and I, you know, I would warn people like when they say, well, it's not 08. Well, don't compare it to 08. 08 wasn't like 2000. 2000 wasn't like, you know, 70s. It's it, it, crises are always come in different forms. And, you know, I could tell you, you know, bank, you know, uh, balance sheets are much cleaner than they were in 08. They're right. But this is a different kind of thing. We took rates up 500 basis points. And so, I'm, my fear is that there's something bigger coming. And 
we've seen so many big, you know, you know, last thing here, I will tell you what I've, what I was amazed about in this process is the reaction to the BTFP program, the bond term funding uh, program that the fed put in place. I, as far as I know, in the history of humans, that kind of lending has never been done ever. I will take your collateral that's worth 80 cents and I will lend you a hundred cents. That's, I've never heard of that. And, oh, also, I will charge you this rate. But if tomorrow the rate's lower, I will allow you to change to that lower rate, which means I have what's called you know, a floating down cap because I can cap it at today's rate. It'll never go higher. But if tomorrow's lower, I could cap it again at that rate. It'll never go higher. That's never been done. You know, I mean, it's an extraordinary facility that back in 07 and 08 really got people's attention. Now everybody's just like, ah, you know, no big deal. What's the, you know, not a big deal. These are extraordinary steps, amazing historic steps that they're having to do. That's not a good sign. You know, it's just not. I don't know how many, you know, I'm getting sold now. I'm in my mid fifties that I think a lot of people in markets weren't, didn't go through 07 and 08. So they don't, these little nuances, they weren't there for it. The, the, the nuance of an action, a new, a new mnemonic, you know, TALF and, and all these different things they created in 0708. Well, BTFP is one of those mnemonics and, and, and it's a massive unparalleled one, you know? And, and so, you know, I, I don't know, man. And of course, now I will look, I'm a bond guy. We're pessimistic by nature. That's our, that's our job. You know, I always joke that bond guys look for the problem first. And once they can't find one, then they'll look for the good things. Equity guys look for the good things first, get excited, and then half-heartedly look for the bad things. So I'm I'm always going to I'm hoping to temper everybody's you know look at the future and you know be robust and be prepared. I think that's a, a good place to wrap this Twitter space up. Thank you everybody for joining. I'm doing another Twitter space in about eight minutes. Stay tuned for that with Victor Shing. Uh, uh, thank you, Randy. Real pleasure listening. To you. Yep. I think a uh, really Thanks, fascinating Mike. conversation. Thank you, everybody. All Cheers. Right. Thanks, Michael. Take care, guys. Bye bye. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.